This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply that proves that award season really is a year-round event. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here in person with Mike Hogan, the digital director of VanityFair.com. Hey, Katie. And once again with Vanity Fair's film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. We are all on the same continent again after the Cannes Film Festival, which uh, kind of feels like it was somehow 100 years ago. But the awards were announced on Sunday, and they caused some controversy. So we've got a thing or two to catch up on from Cannes still. From there, we will hand over the rest of the show to three very special guests, Rachel Tashin, Josh Duboff, and Lauren Levine, all of VF.com. They are the fashion experts who will uh, tell us about what's most important from Cannes, which is, of course, the red carpet fashion. So, Richard, the weekend Oscar news is pretty much about Cannes winners. What happened and why was everyone so mad about them? Well, I think that this year, I mean, I think this has been true uh, at Cannes for a long time, but I think that this year in particular, you know, amplified by Twitter and social media and stuff like that, there really seemed to be a huge disconnect between critics and um, this jury. And, mm-hmm. You know, the jury is not very big. It's only a few people. And, you know, it, it's filmmakers. You know, George Miller was the the head of the, the president of the jury this year, Kirsten Dunst, Donald Sutherland. You know, so it's a lot of actors, a lot of actors, this actors. Year, mm-hmm, which, you know, um, I, I think, you know, p- puts a different spin on it, uh, obviously. But yeah, so there was this disconnect between what were critics favorites at the at the festival, um, movies like Tony Erdman or Jim Jarmusch's Patterson or, um, you know, other things like that, uh, where the the uh, the jury went a different way and <laughs> there were some really surprising winners i would say maybe a couple frustrating winners but mostly it was just surprising more than it was like annoying i guess although so, that was not really reflected i guess in the press room at can i was already back but um apparently there was some some loud booing wow. that has caused its own <laughs> controversy is known for its booing yeah they love yeah. booing in can it's the whole reason to go that's true it's the main reason to go so yeah. uh, so what was the palm d'or the palm d'or is the top prize what yeah. won it and why was that a surprise so that's a movie called uh, i daniel blake that ken loach directed and he's been at can many many times before he uh has won the palm door before for a movie called The Wind That Shakes the Barley. Actually, I think he's won two others, but um, don't quote me on that. But, um, you know, and and it's one of his social realist uh, sort of dramas about people in the north of England and dealing with economic, you know, hardship and stuff like that. And um, to be honest, I didn't see it at the festival because I I had a conflict the night that the press screening and then they do a follow up screening the next day. And I heard from people, oh, it's just another Ken Loach movie. It's good, but you can, you know, it's not going to break the world or anything. And then it goes and wins. So, (laughs) uh, and this happened with Deepon Lai. 
posture, it seemed like. It, yeah. Like, that was a kind of a, a, a realist social drama that then won Calm Door surprised yeah. everybody. And the rumor with last year with, with that, with D-Pen winning, was that that was a compromise decision where there was a certain strong Carol contingent and then there was a certain strong contingent for a, n- another movie or two. And so the only one that they could all sort of agree was maybe their second or third choice. Kind of how that weird ballot tier system works with the Oscars where it's not necessarily everyone's number one choice. Mm-hmm. It's just the one that got the most kind of high Well, and that's what happens when you're a jury too and you're five people in a room talking about yeah. something and then you kind of settle on the one movie that everyone can agree on that yeah. it isn't necessarily the one everyone loves. Right. I mean, what is the thing? A compromise is when no one feels they won, right? You know, yeah. Or, you know, it could be that I mean, I mean, I can't help thinking Ken Loach is, what, 80 years old? Yeah. Mm-hmm. English. You know, you got Donald Sutherland, who's 80 years old and Canadian, and George Miller, who's 71 years old and Australian. Mm-hmm. I can't help thinking that for those guys, that's the kind of film, it might be speaking to them, you Absolutely. know, in a way it's yeah. not speaking to a bunch so, of internet critics so who are in their 30s. white guys run everything. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's a possibility. No, it's, yeah. and, and also, in one, of, you know, I have only uh, been on a jury once, but if somebody's passionate... You know, and and everyone else is sort of confused. Like the passionate person can take the day, right? If there's not someone else to say, absolutely not. I'm gonna and and who wants to go up against? You know, also by the way, actors. It's very difficult for actors to go up against a director mm-hmm. if right. he's passionate about something. Structure. Yeah. yeah well, true. I mean, they want to like keep their option open. Whoever. Who, who cares who wins the Palm Door? Like, am I going to get a role in the next Fury Road? <laughs> George right. Miller put Tom to Hardy it. up on a gimbal flying through the air so he yeah. could torture yeah. you. If you yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think the other thing, um, Guy Lodge, who's a great critic over at Variety, he wrote a piece uh, yesterday about kind of assessing these awards and, and uh, from Cannes. And he made a, a really good point is that um, critics are seeing many, many, many more movies per year than probably even a lot of filmmakers are, you know, um, yes. just because of the nature of the job. And so we might go to a festival like Cannes wanting to see the sort of shock of the new, where we're familiar with the with Loach's oeuvre, people, you know, it's not that shocking to us and we're looking for something new and exciting. Whereas to maybe people on this jury who don't see as many movies, a Ken Loach movie, which is small, intimate, always beautifully acted and, and you know, has a nice kind of progressive political message, that might come as like a real, uh, you know, really something nice and, and and accessible and um, and resonant at a festival where yeah. a lot of the stuff the critics like is, you know, like my favorite personal shopper. I mean, that movie's really weird and like really out there. I yeah. liked it because it kind of stoked a lot of crazy feelings in me, but that might not have the same resonance uh, for a jury that's just like, you know, this is a one-off for them. They're not probably not going to be at Cannes next year. Well, it's know? possible a lot of them have never seen a Ken Loach movie, so they're not thinking like yeah. another Ken Loach movie. They're mm. like, holy shit, Ken Loach is yeah. awesome. Right. Why didn't I know about yeah. this guy? So I, I feel like the second prize was the one that almost caused them more controversy. That was the and, one that uh, got booed, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I, I don't remember if we talked about Xavier. I don't think you had seen I had, Xavier Dolan's movie. I, had, I was looking forward to it. At yes. The time. Um, so, oh. yeah, uh, what's up with Xavier Dolan, who is the 27-year-old we all love to hate because yeah. he's so successful. So he won the Grand Prix, which is second prize, two years ago for his film Mommy, which is I think far superior to the, the It's Only the End of the World, the movie he won for this year. He won uh, the jury prize, which is third place. So he's moving up. You know, he really wants that Palm d'Or is, is the thinking, but who doesn't? I mean, yeah, the, I people, want a Palm d'Or. people single him out for wanting it and it's like they all want it. But yeah, so, so the way it works is that um, the filmmakers who are going to get awards are brought, are, are invited back to this final show where they give out the awards. So if you get called back, it's pretty much evident you're going to get something. It might mean that one of your actors has won an award. It might mean you're getting a screenplay award. Or it might mean that you won the whole thing. So he got called back and 
a screenplay award went to the Farhadi film, The Salesman. Uh, Best Actor went to that too. Jacqueline Jose won for Ma Rosa for Best Actress, which was a surprise. You know, so as these things kept getting ticked off, and then uh, Olivier Assayas um, and um, Christian Munju, uh, the Romanian director, shared Best Director. So there were really only two prizes left at that for point. For Personal Shopper, your weird yeah. movie that yeah. you Yeah, so hey, yeah. They, they liked it too. <laughs> yeah. um, so at that point, I, what I'm told is that Dolan, Xavier Dolan in the audience started crying because he thought he might have won the whole thing because there were only a few more awards to give out. Well, there were, yeah, there are two left, so you have 50-50 yeah. chance. And he, you know, he, when he won second prize, he was very excited. Anyway, people, the critics in the, in the, the press room booed that because <laughs> that movie was really not well received by critics. And I have to say, you know, as much as I am rooting for him as a filmmaker um, and have enjoyed a lot of his movies, this one is, I mean... I don't know how free we can be on this podcast, but (laughs) it is very bad uh, and really almost unwatchable. And so, again, talking about disconnect between critics and and the jury, that is one where it's like, holy cow. I mean, there were there were critics who liked the Ken Loach movie, certainly. You know, no one is going to you know say that it was a bad movie by any means. But this one, I mean, critics really hated it. And it caused all this controversy. And Delan did a lot of interviews where he said that, you know, I, I don't know if I want to make films after this, like all these personal attacks and reviews and, you know, I, all this stuff. So so then to have the, the, the jury just kind of almost just say, well, that critic stuff doesn't matter. We liked it. So here's second prize at the world's biggest film festival. You know, so in some ways, I think that some of that booing was like, how dare you reject our authority? Yes. You know, yeah. yeah. And um, which then makes me root for the jury. Oh, because totally. the critics, it's, just, yeah. it's totally separate. Yeah. They're not supposed yeah. to worry about what the critics right. think. I mean, yeah. really. Yeah. But but now, can you help us understand, because we're like our, I think all of our listeners haven't seen this movie. Nope. But what could account for this disconnect? Like, is it, because I think that actors, when they watch a film, or filmmakers, when they watch the film, are looking for very different things than critics. They're looking for, sure. for it's a lot more about what did you set out to do and did you accomplish it? You know, as a professional, did you was there were there great performances, whether or not the film sort of succeeds on a macro level that I think is more what the critic is looking for. Mm-hmm. The the technicians watching it are, are looking to see, did everybody like do what they set out to do? And are there sort of amazing performances? Are there amazing moments that, you know, is why we're in this business? So is that there in that? Yeah, film? I think that you you put it exactly right in that, like. Perhaps from a director's perspective, Dolan commits to this. I'm going to have all these crazy close-ups, and everything's going to feel really, you know, claustrophobic and interior because it's this uh, movie about a, a family, a homecoming, and then the family kind of just fighting for for two hours or ninety minutes. And and you know, so as a filmmaking choice, he really sticks with it. And then there are these moments where he sort of opens wide, and then it's these kind of big art artistic flourishes that he's sort of known for. So yeah, he does commit to a technique, which is maybe something that Miller or whoever else can. can appreciate and then on the acting side there are all these lovely lingering close-ups of actors and right they really yeah, get, yeah, yeah. they all get these mm-hmm. big moments and there are these shouting matches and it's kind of like french august osage county or something you know it's like yeah um so i can see like you know an, an actor on that jury being like yeah you know he really showcased the actor here you know and then the filmmaker being like he really committed to this you know i don't want to uh to minimize their their you know taste in movies but i think you're right that they do approach it probably from a different perspective where uh, a critic you know is sort of maybe seeing it from the more macro perspective and or, or trying to anyway they're more maybe focused on you know and i don't know what it's like to make a movie so maybe yeah. maybe they see I something in there that i don't i think it's a big difference i think, I yeah. think yeah. that that everything looks different when you when you have the 
experience of actually making movies and you understand what the, everyone on screen is trying right. to do versus mm-hmm. being an audience member or a critic or trying to represent the audience and just say like, am I enjoying this or not? Is it is it kind of you know successful or not? Right. Well, and this happens with the Oscars too, is you see the entire industry lining up behind The Revenant because it's like, holy cow, that movie was so hard to make. Right. And they can appreciate it in a way that the rest of us who are just watching these movies set in snowy climbs can, you yeah. know, can't quite see. And every scene is probably like, how did they do that? Mm-hmm. How the hell did they do mm-hmm. that? I could never, you know, or, yeah. or I would have loved the chance to do that. Actors. Like it's uh, yeah. Yeah, well, you... then there's that too. Um, <laughs> and then there's also just the cynical side of me. Of all the filmmakers probably floating around there, he's probably the one with the biggest future. So there's probably a yes. little bit of yeah. some of the actors being like, let's yeah. throw him he's a bone. He's got his first big English language film lined up that's shooting this summer with Jessica Chastain and Kathy Bates and Kit Harrington and Taylor Kitsch and... Susan Sarandon and Adele is maybe going to be like it's like you know so I think that they see him ascendant I mean again he is so young he's only 27 so I know I'll say the other thing that maybe got some critics upset maybe some of the more principled critics let's say uh, is that this was um, you know there were only three uh, female directors in competition but that was more than last year so and then there were also all these amazing female performances this year more you know more than men the, the, the male the best I feel like actor that comes out of can every year though you're always hearing yeah. about mind-blowing female performances yeah. that may or may not ever like be seen here that's true you know so but it did feel like this sort of like there was a chance, and because there were uh, two films, Tony Erdman directed by Myron Day and a German director, and uh, and American Honey directed by Andrea Arnold, that really were really liked at the festival by critics a lot. It seemed like, oh well, one, a, a woman's going to win the Palme d'Or for I think only the second time. Like I Jane think Jane Campion, yes. the second other one. time. You know, yes. so so that I think was some disappointment too. And Arnold still picked up a prize, but like it, 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 that was I think too bad. And I think so. I think there was a lot of disappointment in the press room, and that's why you see, you know, I think. A, Cahier du cinema, however you say that, they tweeted in in French, you know, something about how the jury took a beautiful festival and and put it to waste or something oh, like God. that, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, something like wow. that. Don't quote me on either how to pronounce that or what they said, but um, but yeah. once again, I do think you know, and and even just suspending judgment entirely, but just looking at it objectively, I imagine that a seventy one year old Australian guy is going to be less attuned to those sort of historical sure. imperatives than maybe somebody else. He did make I, the I most, one of the most feminist blockbusters ever, though. Right. But I mean, I, okay. I mean, yeah. Not, yeah, I don't I mean, know how much he set out to make a feminist blockbuster and how much he set out to like make a badass well, movie he got, with Charles um, Theron. I think it was uh, Gloria Steinem, who was a consultant. Not Gloria okay. Steinem. Um, Eve Ensler. He, he got Eve Ensler as a consultant on Mad Max. Anyway, I, I don't want to try to read George Miller's mind. No, neither do I, and I don't even want to criticism criticize him. It's just like he's not generationally, presumably not as attuned to the sort of Gen X millennial hand ringy like yeah. when are we going to have a female? Right. And 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 it maybe I don't know. I mean, it sounds like the choice was at least uh, open to debate because yeah. everyone loved Tony Erdman was the one people wanted. People right? that I mean that was the one that every critic was like, well, that's going to win, right? And you know they were completely wrong. It didn't win anything. Yeah. So you know I think that that we were maybe not always the best at predicting that stuff. And I think in terms of this debate about you know a woman winning and and that, how that would have been nice, I don't really. 
think that that is the job of the discrete jury of that year. You know, I think it's more a problem of the festival where it's like, just put more movies made by women in the competition and the law of numbers will eventually work. If someone on the jury was... By the way, you you shouldn't be thinking like, oh, do I need to give this to a woman? Ideally, right? You would ideally just being like, what's the best movie? Right. So, Um, you know, I think that everyone just sort of thought like, oh, this is going to happen again because there is these two really strong movies by women. So people were disappointed that it didn't. So, so yeah, it was kind of a rocky end to a a weird festival, but, you know, everyone's the winner ultimately because there are a lot of good movies that we saw at the festival that are going to be coming out at some point, hopefully. So, you know, no matter how things shook out with the awards, we all have a lot to look forward to. So, and I can see I, Daniel Blake, which I have not seen yet. Hey, we all can at some point. Presumably it will come out. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure now now it will. Yeah. 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 Maybe this is the year for Ken Loach to win best director. Yeah. Hey, hey, start that Oscar buzz now. Could yeah. happen. This Here we where, go. This is, where <laughs> this is us saying it right now. But also, is there any chance that Tony Erdman gets helped in the Oscar race as this sort of like gypped? It's sort of helped movie? Carol. Sort of. Yeah. yeah. I mean, no, it's it's possible. Yeah. I think that you know. Again, I my understanding. One hundred and sixty-five minutes, which seems like a little bit of an obstacle. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, that's that's a big obstacle, and I think it's. It, it, I, I think I was less up on that movie than other people. I think it's a little too long. But you know, I don't. The, the way that best best foreign language film works is so. You know, sort of uh, right. confusing. But I, I will say that in terms of like uh, and getting an audience in America, and this is cynical and sad to say, there's a lot of Tony Urban that's in English. So um, because mm. they're in Romania for the bulk of the film, and, and so there's kind of a lot of Romanians and German people talking to each other in English, which you know could help. But I don't know. I mean, a more proved that uh, you know a very tough to watch foreign film can go really far in the Oscar race. So I try not to be yeah. skeptic. That's true. Mm-hmm. And, that's true. More was great, and I and it to won Tony at Cannes, didn't it? Or it was at Cannes? It won something at yeah. Cannes. <laughs> It's it's in there somewhere. (laughs) And now we would like to welcome three special guests who are joining us to talk about can and fashion, which is the most important part of can, obviously. I'm here with Rachel Tashin, who is, uh, she's in the PR department at Vanity Fair. I don't even know your actual title. Associate PR director and contributing style editor, comma, VF.com. You have the most complicated title at all of VanityFair.com. And Lauren Levine, who is the Vanities editor. (laughs) And Josh Duboff, who is a staff writer. Hi. And uh, you guys are going to uh, tell us all about can fashion, so I'm going to hand it over to you. And I think, Rachel, you are guiding this conversation. Yes, I would be happy to do that. So, you know, as with bread and child rearing and keeping a mistress, the French do red carpet fashion at a totally different level than Americans do. I remember last year I spoke to Kate Young, who's the stylist for Sienna Miller and Natalie Portman and Rachel Weiss, among many other people, and she told me quite ominously, it is vast and there are stairs. So there's something about this scale of this red carpet and the sparkly kind of Mediterranean light that um, really encourages people to take it to a next level. So I wanted to talk a bit about first, like, who really killed it this year and what does it mean to kill it in Cannes? Hmm. I mean, the first thing I thought of when you said stairs was obviously Julia Roberts, who, as we all know, took her heels off to climb those stairs. God, um, I mean, that's really the first thing I think of. And also when you think of that long red carpet and from those far away shots, you think of those huge gowns and just, I don't know, seeing those long shots when you see them just like gown after gown after gown just posing on the red carpet. And I guess there's just so much room, really, Mm -hmm. to just blow out those huge skirts is something you can... 
think about. Right. And the thing, too, with uh, Julia Roberts kind of kicking her shoes off is there's this, you know, very, I hope it's self-aware, but sense of European kind of over-the-top opulence that, you know, everyone is kind of indulging themselves and maybe acting in a in a way that they may not on the other the other red carpets of the of the United States. Um, so, Josh, who did who really looked great to you? Well, I think we've all been talking a lot about two women. I guess who actually were in a movie together, the Woody Allen movie, uh, which are Kristen Stewart and Blake Lively. And I kind of love the idea of the two of them together. I wrote something mm-hmm. for the site about this, but their kind of like unlikely friendship was kind of one of the like most fun stories from Cannes to me because I don't know. It kind of reminded me of like the captain of the lacrosse team in high school and the like kind of like rebel theater club kid like (laughs) coming together and like uniting and like that I don't know if you guys had this at your high school but like the two of them would like make an announcement together one day at an assembly and everyone would just be like oh my god like overwhelmed by the kind of sheer intensity of these two kind of like forces coming together and uniting and I think they both have obviously very different styles they both are very different kinds of celebrities but I think they both kind of like unanimously like really did a great job this year of like kind of taking their like style a step forward even or like on a bigger scale or um, I think there was a lot of like kind of thematic consistency for both of them in different ways and Blake really goes for that like princess sort of like all-American like there's nothing too kind of like intense or big for her and then Kristen obviously has much more of this kind of I think Rachel you had mentioned this like French feel to almost how she approached dressing you know she wore like sneakers She, she doesn't care about kind of the sort of standard practice, sort of, you know, fashion kind of etiquette stuff. She kind of just goes for what she kind of wants. The two of them together are just, it was, I thought that they were kind of the most exciting fashion yeah, element for me. Yeah, they were kind of yin and yang. You know, yes. like Kristen was wearing t-shirts, which I just, I love that. And always manages somehow, I feel like, when she wears t-shirts to look like, kind of like she's wearing a t-shirt, but also like super glamorous at the same time, which like is sort of innate to her, I almost feel like in mm-hmm. a way, because like I think... If I wore a T-shirt on the camera carpet, I'd look like I was going to, like, Dwayne Reed or something. (laughs) But she manages to look super, you know, like, I don't know, chic. She does look like she studied abroad and decided not to come back. (laughs) Um, Yeah, she feels very, like, appropriate for the venue. Like, very, I mean, she won the, I'm not going to be able to say this correctly, the, the, you know, the French Academy Award. um, And, like, she, you know, feels, like, very at home and peace there. I don't know. You see her, like. Yeah. I don't know. Just it feels very much like her vibe. Yeah, she's very Parisian these days. So I don't know. I think the two of them. And then Bella Hadid also, I think, we yeah, thought kind of. I mean, moment. she definitely like stood out. And I know you, uh, Lauren, talked to the stylist for the famous red exactly, dress. Exactly, for the famous red dress. What subdu- was, subdued what was us happening all. under there. Yeah. I mean, that was a pretty, that's going to go down in con history for of course. sure. As, as one of the biggest fashion moments. So can you kind of, we're going to engage in the high wire act of, of attempting to explain a totally visual uh, medium in a non-visual setting. But can you describe for us this um, Alexander Vautier dress that Bella Hadid wore? So it was kind of, I would say, a red wisp of satin fabric, kind of like a halter top almost, um, although that is kind of bringing it down to almost a Jersey Shore-esque level. So don't erase that vision from your memory right now. It came very low on her back barely had a skirt. It had a thigh-high slit, 
So you were just wondering how she could take a step and not have every single thing fall out on the red carpet. So I learned from her stylist, Elizabeth Solser, that there was actually a nude bodysuit strapped on under there, which is how if an errant breeze came by, which we know can happen when you're in Cannes, not everything would be exposed. Um, But beyond that, there was not much happening underneath the dress. She said that she had her practice standing still. She had her practice moving. And beyond that, she just said Bella had to be confident in wearing that dress. And then beyond that, it was just... Stand there and just have your moment in the sun. Which I do feel like for to wear that kind of dress, you have to have that like kind of just I'm going for this mindset. Yeah. And like I feel you can read on expression sometimes when like it's not there. And I feel like it really was for Bella. Like I feel like she knew this was like her moment and oh, her yeah. dress. And she had that kind of like intensity facial expression going on. That I feel like you're just like, whoa, she knew that this was going to be the like show stopping, like cover of magazine sort of dress. But also, yeah, definitely like one false move in that dress. Oh, and, like, yeah. I don't, but I think that is kind yeah. of the interesting thing about this red carpet is that you can really make a fashion moment and make it a huge celebrity moment for yourself as well. And I think, you know, one of the other things that we had been speaking about is the fact that a lot of the people who were attending these red carpets were, in fact, not even, you know, actors who were in films. They were, you know, uh, a lot of them were models who mm-hmm. were kind of taking advantage of this major, you know, this vast red carpet and stairs to make a splash for themselves. So, Lauren, do you want to talk a bit about that phenomenon, why that was so interesting to you? Sure. I mean, at the beginning of the week, you know, the premiere of things like the BFG and Cafe Society, that's and you know, Mad Money, or Money Monster, I should say, if someone called it Mad Money in another podcast last night, I had a nice laugh about that. That's where you saw, you know, more of the actors coming out and the films that are going to be up for, you know, the grand jury prize. And then at this one premiere of the film, The Unknown Girl, which is where Bella had her big moment, that's where all the models started to come. And they were there for um, the runway show at the Amphar Gala, which happened in the second week of Cannes. And that's, I guess, where the models start to come. You know, it's yacht season, the kickoff of yacht season, which we all know and love. We love seeing those pictures in places like the Daily Mail, I feel like. And that's where you get those model moments where they're just there to, you know, debut these dresses where I don't think they'd have their moment in the sun on a more traditional red carpet like at the Golden Globes or the Oscars. They're there to wear couture and have these dresses that I think designers make just for them to have this standout moment at Cannes. I love how you said, like, the models descend as if it's, like, invasion of the body snatchers <laughs> or something. It's, like, like the they, model infestation. Yeah, no, no, it the, totally is. unknown it totally girl, is. and none of them are unknown girls, which yeah, is, that is funny. the irony of the situation. I also do love when it's, like, you'll see the, like, pictures of the model, and then at the bottom it will say, like, at the premiere of, like, some random movie <laughs> exactly. that, like, you've no, no one's ever talked about or you've heard of, and you're kind of like, oh, okay. For so many of these people, it's, like... I don't know. Obviously, a lot of us were aware of Bella Hadid, but I feel like Cannes is such a good opportunity for someone like her who's kind of, she's been up and coming for bubbling under for maybe a year or two now and sort of is like ready to make her splash. And Cannes, I feel like because of what you said about the kind of enormity of the red carpet feels like such a, it's it's hard to even imagine another place where if you're someone like a model who isn't necessarily, you know, always given the chance to like promote stuff and that kind of thing, like it's such a good opportunity to Mm -hmm. be there and like make your moment happen for you. Um, 
I don't know. And Especially like, because I think designers are very willing and excited about the opportunity to lend a dress or create a dress for that setting, which, you know, you did see a lot of actors wearing sort of, you know, surprising or like, you know, ultra luxurious kinds of clothing. Like, you know, you see Kristen Stewart so often in things like Redarte, but you actually saw her in Gucci, which was kind of like an, a really, which is, you know, the very hot and cool uh, European brand right now. So you see people kind of making like surprising plays or even, you know, when we were talking about Blake and, and Kristen, both of them wore Chanel for a lot of their press tours and they've both been Chanel spokespeople in the past. But this was kind of like a great moment for them to indulge in that like Chanel fantasy and also to sort of construct their own, I guess, identity through this brand. Because even though we're also familiar with Chanel in certain ways, like we saw Blake Lively wearing, you know, this kind of like orange, you know, very wild floral appliqued coat, whereas we saw um, Kristen Stewart, for example, wearing like a Chanel skirt with a T-shirt. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it gives them the opportunity to, you know, work with these big European houses um, that convey like a certain level of luxury and celebrity that, you know, we may not see when they are doing the press tour for this movie in America. I also feel like there's so many of our red carpets that we're used to, like the Oscars one or the Golden Globes or those where they're so crowded and like they happen so fast. And like mm-hmm. this carpet is so... It's like the way they all walk and the photo call at the top of the stairs. And like, I just feel like you see so many more pictures and it almost feels like you have more time with them in a weird way. Um, So I feel like when certain things happen, like like even when Shia LaBeouf wore that white jacket or like when we have the whole Sean Penn, Charlize Theron kind of like moment on the red carpet, like those moments stand out so much more, I feel like, just because of the way that this red carpet feels so much more like spaced out and like... I don't know. The whole scale is different, I feel like. It's, like, slowed down and more spacious, so it's, like, very... I don't know. It, it kind of enables those moments, I feel like, to pop even more than they do on other red carpets, yeah. where it's like, oh, she's doing this crazy thing, but, like, there's 800 other people we're tracking at the same time, and, like, mm-hmm. I don't know. And everyone gets their own day, I feel like. Like, yeah. Bella had her own day. Like, Blake it's and Kristen true. had their day. Like, everyone has their, like, day that kind of everyone is, like, paying attention to Yeah, them. and then I think you wonder if some of their choices are deliberate. Like, when you brought up Charlize and, like, she wore that Dior suit yes, to the yes. premiere, mm-hmm. where we all now see these pointed looks she gave Sean Penn, and, like, was that a power play you almost have to wonder and I mean I feel like we now have those indelible images forever from that one red carpet and she just looked like a boss yeah you know? well she was wearing that like like jacket yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. right 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 yeah which is very a very in the French tradition yeah yes yeah. exactly but yeah also allowed her to assert a little bit of power over exactly and then I mean I feel we have to bring up you know Blake Lively again and just her is she or is she not pregnant like press tour that she was on on this entire trip that we went with her. I mean, it is pretty amazing that she managed to wear all of this, like, you know, very exuberant European couture while being pregnant. I mean, you don't necessarily associate, like, Versace with maternity wear. Mm-hmm. In fact, you, you kind of associate Versace with the opposite. Exactly. Um, but, yeah, she, she managed to really... Um, explore a lot of different looks as a, as a as a pregnant woman. I was about to say, I feel like she, like, it was so many discreet, I don't know, like, I feel mm-hmm. like there were so many looks that exactly. were presented from Kristen and Blake, but, like, it was kind of like a whole, I don't know, it was, there was a lot of, like, because I feel like she had the princess moments, but then she also had, like, the red jacket and kind of the more kind of, like, chill sort of situation. 
Um, yeah, she know. had her scuba dress. Set yeah, up, right, right, right. Settle promotion for The Shallows, which is her mm-hmm. woman versus shark movie, mm-hmm. you know. Right. She's very strategic, I think, sometimes with and her the, fashion and the, choices. And the yellow one that she wore um, for the, like, luncheon day. Yeah. That was, like, a whole different sort of, like, velvety, leisurely. <laughs> yes. the, very, the very technical words for it, I'm sure. <laughs> but I don't know. I kind of feel like, at least from my standpoint, like, she has... She seemingly kind of like gets really into it and has fun with it, which I feel like comes across. Mm-hmm. Like even the way she presents everything, I don't know. Like mm-hmm. it's just she seems to be kind of, I don't know. It's all very confident and conscious. I feel like I don't know. She definitely seems to have a sense of like what is appropriate for her to wear to each event. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that there's only one possibility. Oh yeah, you know, for each thing. Right. Like sometimes you get a sense that Kristen just wakes up and she's like, okay, sure. Like you know, yeah. like I'll put this on. Like yeah. it's, it's like it's a lot less of a. Like yeah, I don't I have know. A Chanel skirt. I'll grab my Chanel yeah, bag. Yeah, right, 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 right. T-shirt, and mm-hmm. you know, I'm just gonna stand on the red carpet. Tons of eyeliner. I love the ton of eyeliner. I think everything she kind of accessorizes with. She had these two padlock necklaces that she wore with almost everything that I loved. I thought they went with her whole vibe that she had going on, which was great. Is there anyone we were missing? I feel like we talked about like Kendall, Gigi Hadid. We were missing, yeah. or like yes. wondering. She did yeah, not, did not come see this year. Gigi. Yeah, I feel like we were all kind of waiting to see if she would yeah. like dis- join Bella or Kendall and yeah. like descend upon. And I mean, like, she do didn't you really. Think she voluntarily stepped back and said, "Bella, this this, this is, is yours." Your fashion moment. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it was a kind of an interest. I was surprised. I was excited to see her, like, really rock some, like, wild gowns and, like, you know, gallivant with Kendall and, like, Paris and, like, you know. um, And Kendall only did one red carpet, which was surprising. Right, right. She was there to promote Magnum ice cream bars, which we were talking about before, which we were, I guess, again, surprised (laughs) about. That was her big party of Cannes this year. Yeah. She wore—we really liked that one dress. Yes, yeah. Beautiful. Kind of like bolts of lightning mm-hmm. yes. strung together. And I feel like there's so much now, like I'm sure there's been stuff explored about this in other places, but like the Instagrammability of some of these dresses, mm-hmm. like that dress Instagrammed very well. Yeah. Which I feel like nowadays is a big, how a lot of like most people are probably even seeing the dress for the first time when they're like following Kendall on Instagram. Oh, of course. But like those dresses that are just are like extremely vivid and like crisp and like that form. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I feel... Oh, Mal Clooney was also one that I thought she looked really great at the oh, yeah. premiere. Mm-hmm. And like stood with all the actors yeah, up at the... Everyone was questioning why yeah. she was standing at the top of the But I was like, you know what? Like, actors. of course she should be up there. Exactly. I was like, why wouldn't Mal Clooney be there? Yeah, the if she's at movie. a premiere, like you want her at that top for the photo call. Yeah. I don't what know. What was she wearing? It was like... A, she was wearing that floaty yellow dress yeah. that the Daily oh, yeah. Mail liked to point out she had problems with standing on. Yeah, and but... Yeah. like, can Amal Clooney live? Right? The Daily Mail, if you so much yeah. as, like, make one... Like, yeah, like one even, like, stumble... Up. Not even a stumble. Like, they yeah. are on it with, like, 18 photos. Like, you are not... <laughs> right. Like, you're not going to be saved. Like... Well, that's the other thing about this red carpet, too, is it's, like, so big and long mm-hmm. that I'm sure there are all these very awkward sort of paparazzi photos that emerge. Like, I'm sure that other people have stumbled on dresses before. You know, a long train is a very typical sort of yeah. premiere silhouette. But um, the fact that, you know, this this carpet is so long, it's like this super highway of celebrity means that, you know, those moments are, are caught on, on film. Yeah, and I mean, they have people walking behind them, you know, fluffers to use like a great term from porn about it um and i mean some of the funny moments you saw on instagram this year some of the more funny models i think took pictures you know like of like here's what happens behind me on the red carpet Mm -hmm. you know the poor person who holds my train while i like pose for the cameras and look magnificent which was funny to see 
And we also haven't talked like, like the whole like Amphar, like Katy Perry's look. I feel like also got a lot of attention. Oh, yeah, like yeah, the Marquise that, that, that red she wore. sort of mm-hmm. like rose. I don't even like it had the like flower. Like it was like a, blooming. Like American and, Beauty. The scene from American Beauty. Yeah, the dress. I thought she looked like I don't know. I think she always. I she's another one where I feel like she just like goes for it, which I really mm-hmm. appreciate. Like she's like I'm doing this. Yeah. She's a very thematic. Dresser. Yes, yes, that's mm-hmm. the word I'm looking for. Um. But that's that whole, that was like at the very end of Camp Con, I guess. Yeah, that was for the, the Amphar Gala. Yeah, yeah, where a lot of models ended up wearing Marquesa, which was very interesting. Right. Yeah, so those can this year. Yeah. I mean, pretty over the top and opulent, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Bella Hadid was the real standout moment to me. Yeah, I was about to say, did you have one favorite look? Would it be Bella? I mean, I don't even know if it was so much. It was just like a showstopper, I would say. Like, I think it's what we're going to remember besides. Kristen Stewart just being French and magnificent and wearing t-shirts, which is like my dream for a red carpet and Blake Lively being a Disney princess come to life. Yeah. I think my favorite actually was someone who we haven't spoken about yet was Chloe Sevigny, um, who was there promoting her her short film Kitty. It's her first kind of her directorial debut. And she's, um, you know, she's done con before, but not um, as a director. And I think that she did an incredible job of dressing up like Coco Chanel whenever she she had the opportunity to do it. You know, some of the other women wearing Chanel were kind of taking the brand's clothing and making it their own. But she really just channeled Coco. I mean, Mm -hmm. with her little boater hats and like always little striped t-shirt and you know little lace culottes so she she had the you know coco in south of france look down pat i think i mean it's hard for me to pick between like Kristen had those like the all black and all white versions mm-hmm. of like basically the same look <laughs> um which like i just thought was amazing because it was kind of like art like it's like when you like a t-shirt and then you buy the same t-shirt in a different color because you're just like <laughs> yeah i really like this i loved that in general i think blake i always am into her looks i just feel like she I don't know. It's like I feel like she she just I, I think it's always as we said before like she nails kind of it's like always very well put together and um, I think my favorite of hers was actually maybe the one she wore for that shallows thing that was kind oh, of the like geometric y yes. oh no 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 not I forget which event she wore this to it was kind of like blue and green and kind oh, of like the had, scuba outfit yes the yes, scuba, the outfit. scuba yes, outfit yes yes that yes. was a great one I really like that. I also liked the famous Elsa one. I don't know. It was just so yeah, like, yeah. like it was just so glam. It was, it was. just it was so She's like such a all, movie star. Yeah, that, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. I just love it's like so. Yeah. It's and a so... fun fact I read about that premiere last night is that it was the BFG premiere. <laughs> she showed up. L'Oreal paid her to show up and just show off her hair and look great. And she didn't. It was just shuffled away after the red carpet. Like did, you, you don't did, stay for the movie. Did not see the movie. Her hair always is also just yeah, like... Right. Hair looked great. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, game on, Blake. Yeah. <laughs> you did can. And now before we go, we will take another look back at Oscar history. And this time go a little bit further back than we've been used to. Um... Because the Oscars are famously indifferent to comedy, which is something we'll be getting into on a later episode, uh, we wanted to look at basically the last time a true comedy won Best Picture, which was Annie Hall, the uh, Woody Allen classic. Uh, it's a you know one of those classics that actually managed to win Best Picture, but it also managed to beat out Star Wars, which a lot of people would still argue didn't deserve to happen. The other three nominees, just for the reference, are The Goodbye Girl, Julia, and The Turning Point. But the conversation always usually boils down to Annie Hall and Star Wars, and, and 
truth be told, those are the only two in this crowd that I have seen. So, guys, what should have won, Annie Hall or Star Wars? Uh, well, I mean, I think that it, you have two things there where one was the crowning of a, you know, ascendant filmmaker in Woody Allen, who, you know, was about to kind of enter, I think, his most fertile period, kind of late 70s, early 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, so in that sense, the Oscars got it right. But in the other sense, they got it wrong because, you know, they sort of failed to sort of identify this. I mean, I guess they nominated it, but they didn't, you know, uh, award this um, this phenomenon that would is still we're still dealing with 40 years later. So dealing with in a pretty major way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, After after, you know, some some peaks and valleys. But, you know, I think for I think we forget maybe what Annie Hall really kind of introduced in terms of like comedic vernacular Mm -hmm. in in terms of, you know, um, uh, movies. And so I I still would go with that. You know, and this is Woody Allen's personal life aside. I I think that that one still probably for me is a little bit more important in some ways to to the kind of movies that the Oscars are are generally. Because every every filmmaker who makes any kind of comedy has been influenced by Annie Hall. I think so. Yeah. I mean, maybe. I mean, it's again, it's 40 years old now, so maybe that its influence has sort of waned some. But I think it's a pretty important movie uh, in a way that maybe the Oscars giving it best picture kind of con- uh, confers upon it where we already know that Star Wars is big because it's, it's got the financial aspect mm-hmm. to it. So maybe and it did at the time. Yeah, too. So maybe that's keeping things balanced or something. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I'm I think they did the right thing. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Star Wars in some ways is like a hot mess. And it <laughs> the was ama- the movie itself. Yeah, was. it was amazing. It was revelatory. It like energized a lot of people, including a lot of kids. But you know, I, I think that best picture in a perfect world is honoring a kind of artistic achievement that includes really knowing what you're doing and really being at the top of your game. Mm-hmm. And I think Star Wars was a little bit of a first draft of. I mean. Obviously, you can't deny the impact it had, but artistically, I think it was like a first draft. And because it was so new and creative and different from anything else, it introduced the entire world of basically movies that don't come out in December that we live in now. <laughs> but it and was. Star Wars now comes out in December, so even December is not. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But I think. Um, I don't know. I would watch Annie Hall like I've, I've seen it, I can't imagine how many times. And it's just like a perfect movie mm-hmm. even though you know as as much as it bothers me all the Woody Allen stuff although this is less creepy than Manhattan try oh, watching oh. a Manhattan oh, yeah. watching Manhattan now yeah that's no, it's Manhattan a great is, film but yeah. it's just tough to watch no Manhattan is a great film with this completely incomprehensible thing in the middle which is that your hero is dating a teenager yeah <laughs> really yeah I'm just trying to pass it off like hey maybe if I put this in a movie uh, <laughs> people se- will think it's normal yeah. or were the 70s really that different like <laughs> I mean I think they were too let's face it. Um, this is not about Manhattan I don't know no, I, I I think uh, I you know like I think Empire Strikes Back is it, almost it more of a yeah. film that succeeds on every front, whereas yeah. Star Wars was this kind of like incredible gambit that mm-hmm. like amazingly worked. I think it's really cool that they nominated it. You yeah, know? It was, yes, yeah, it's especially so cool. in a time yeah. when when there was such a. Uh, it seems to me there was a pretty there was a divide between what was an Oscar movie and what wasn't. You know, I think we've the the Academy's worked a lot in recent years to kind of try to bleed you know blend that difference a little bit just because they want people to watch the, the broadcast but yeah but you know back then that was that, that was a big deal to have like this space opera made by some bunch of hippies you know yeah just a sci-fi movie in general yeah. is like crazy that it made it in there and they had managed to nominate jaws so like the set you know the right. 70s recognizing the turning point of blockbusters yeah. was getting there i mean if you think about it annie hall i would say woody allen's best movie right also possibly the greatest most indelible movie yeah the yeah. greatest like 
I don't know. One of the greatest New York romantic comedies. One of the greatest romantic comedies. Well, without that, we don't get Harry and Sally. We don't get You've Got Mail or uh, Sleepless in Seattle, which is not New York. Well, it ends in New York. And you can say, I mean, it's a big clash of the titans. I mean, I get it. What's funny to think if Annie Hall hadn't come out that year, would Star Wars have won or would they have given it to some other shitty Oscar-y movie? Yeah, they they probably would have. I mean, the year before, Rocky had won, which is really interesting. Like, if it had been Rocky and Star Wars back to back, like, Oscar history could be totally different. I mean, two franchises that literally had movies come out last right, Rocky year. Rocky won. Yeah. But Rocky is more, Rocky has at least as much in common in a way with Annie Hall as it does with Star Oh yeah, Rocky's Wars, like you know? an indie, like a scrappy, yeah. mm-hmm. like, you know, made it with all of your flesh and blood kind of movie. Yeah. And, you know, but, it, you know, Rocky beat out all the President's Men, Network, and Taxi Drivers. Jesus so it's, Christ. Whoops. Know, the, the 70s were a pretty good time for Best Picture nominees. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I you guys have convinced me to Annie Hall, even though I, I usually tend to side toward like the historical event being recognized just because like, you know, like Titanic winning Best Picture to me is an example of like the Oscars really getting it right. But it is these two like Annie Hall was all the comedies that have come in the 40 years since Star Wars is every blockbuster that's come in the 40 years since like you kind of can't go wrong. They're both huge historical landmarks. Yeah, mm-hmm. I would say that, I, you know, and I guess just to, to reiterate the point, like I, I but Star Wars at least had the sort of financial like they were like, OK, you're the big block, blockbuster like you are certified like a classic and so this kind of helps certify Annie Hall as a classic winning an award Um, this is kind of what the Oscars need to do more yeah I mean I think that you know uh, yeah that's a good argument yeah I think that another interesting thing about Annie Hall winning is that like compared to nowadays it's such a tiny movie Mm -hmm. and it's such a talky little thing that you know I guess Spotlight just won and that's a big that's that's a small talky movie but it's about a huge subject so but Annie Hall is really just about like the sex life of a 30 something you know mm-hmm. I mean it's really small um, and now but those think, movies are really yeah. indie now you know yeah. and they don't ever get this kind of attention but it's just everything about it is like bordering on perfect perfect script perfect performance even Woody Allen is just like amazingly good acting yeah. the cinematography it's like Whereas, Woody Allen as himself in the best Woody Allen as himself role. yeah the way you really root for him actually mm-hmm. What are you doing? What? Sorry, no. <laughs> just gonna start quoting. <laughs> <anyhow>. <laughs> well, I'm glad we've settled on Oscar history actually getting it right for once. This mm-hmm. is uh, this feels good. Now, let's face it. You know, I don't think our relationship is working. I know a relationship. I think is is like a shark. You know, it has to constantly move forward or it dies. And I think what we got on our hands is a dead shark. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, please rate us and review us on iTunes. We appreciate it. We like keeping the conversation going. Uh, You can find us all at VanityFair.com, writing and editing, etc. And you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Katie Rich. Mike? Mike underscore Hogan. And Richard? Rylaz. And we're all at Little Gold Men. This episode was produced by Sam Dingman and edited by Tim Einenkel. And thanks to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for Best Accidental Thesis Statement for a Podcast About Movies goes to Rachel Tashian. We're going to engage in the high-wire act of of attempting to explain a totally visual uh, medium in a non-visual setting.
I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. From PRX.